when we think about ADHD, the best way to think about it when you're thinking about it, if it's something that you identify with or if it's something that you identify your partner is having, is to think of it as a self-regulation disorder. If you use the term ADHD, it might get a little bit lost, but if you say self-regulation like disorder, hmm. it tells you what's going on. Right. Welcome everybody to the podcast, Relationships. Let's talk about it. I'm Prebo Toplitsky. I'm a psychotherapist specializing in relationship issues. Everybody's got one. Partners, family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, relationships. Let's talk about it. Welcome everybody to this episode, ADHD and the effects on relationships. I have a conversation with my colleague, Dr. Chris Mulcahy. Chris is an expert in the field of ADHD, and we explore aspects from childhood ADHD and adult ADHD. So let me tell you a little bit more about Chris. Dr. Chris Mulcahy is a licensed psychologist in both North Carolina and Hawaii, and his practice focuses on three types of assessments, ADHD, learning disorders, and custodial evaluations. He serves as the president for the local psychological association here in North Carolina, and he is also the board member of the International Council of Psychologists which is a human rights organization. And also, Chris is my office mate. We have offices in the same building, and it's great to have this conversation with Chris. Because like I said, he's not only an expert in this field, but he's a really nice guy. I love sharing an office space with him. He's got a tremendous amount of knowledge in this area, as well as being a really down-to-earth human being. So, like I said, we explore aspects of childhood ADHD, some aspects of treatment, diagnosis. Is ADHD even a valid diagnosis? Medications and the effects on medications, learning disabilities, and the challenges that family go through with this. And also the importance of understanding the role of ADHD in adult relationships. You know, transforming your relationship starts with understanding the role that ADHD plays. And once you are able to identify how the symptoms of ADHD are influencing your interactions as a couple, you can learn better ways of responding. And we talk about various symptoms of ADHD that can cause relationship problems like trouble paying attention, forgetfulness, poor organizational skills, impulsivity, and emotional outbursts. So I think that you will find this interesting if you or a family member identifies with ADHD. And here we go. ADHD and the effects on relationships with Dr. Chris Mulcahy. Let's talk about it. Hey Chris, thanks for thanks for doing this with me. Thanks for having me, Prepo. Yeah. 
so it's cool like we're we're across the hall from each other we get to see each other during the days so can you break it down a little bit like what is we we get that thrown out all the time adhd or you're add what is adhd and and what is the difference between add yeah that's a great question i like to start off by just talking about add we hear that all the time you see it on books you see it on websites you think if an expert writes in book on ADD, and that's in the title, that ADD is a real thing. And I like to tell people that it's not a real thing. It's a term that we had in our manual up until about 1983. And since 1983, it has been called ADHD. And people sometimes get frustrated because they might say ADHD includes the hyperactive part. And I'll pause for a second. ADHD stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Some people might tell you, well, I don't have the hyperactivity, so I'm ADD. But our manual says there's two types of ADHD, inattentive and hyperactive. But we all stopped calling it ADD in 1983, and we use the term ADHD now. Thinking about what it is, I think most people think of it as a behavior issue. But it's been redefined. Our manual calls it a neurodevelopmental issue. What does that mean? Neurodevelopmental means it's part of the brain. We can actually see markers in most people with ADHD in the brain. And if we can measure it in the brain, then it's more than just our behavior. So how do you work with people that have a diagnosis? Some people like a diagnosis and they go, shoo, man, I'm so glad I, to know why I'm acting like this. Other people go, man, I don't like it because it's stigmatizing. Like, how do you work with, I don't want to say normalizing it, but making people comfortable with if there's an aspect of that behavior in their life, how do you normalize it with them? Yeah, I think the, I like to answer that we use the term diagnosis to define something that is really problematic in someone's life. And we do that so that we can come up with strategies to help them improve. If someone doesn't identify their behaviors as problematic, then it may not be a diagnosis. It may not be impacting their day-to-day life. But if they simply don't like using the diagnostic terms because they are stigmatizing and, and there is a long history of stigmatizing people with diagnoses, then we can talk about the behaviors individually. And with ADHD, it's actually much more functional to talk about the behaviors individually. Because if we had 10 people in the room with us while we're talking right now, and each of those 10 people had ADHD, and we asked them to describe their experience of having ADHD, we'd hear 10 different stories. The diagnosis of ADHD is a categorical diagnosis, meaning there's uh, about 12 symptoms. And if someone has six of those symptoms, they get it. But somebody else could have six different symptoms and it could look and function very differently. And it's part of the, part of the challenge of searching the internet or trying to uh, understand how a stigmatizing diagnosis might impact someone. So here's another ball at you. Does a diagnosis really exist as, you know, ADHD? Yes, we know it exists in the DSM, but what would you say about the reality of, is it real? 
That's a great question. Is it real is, is, a, is a great philosophical question. Philosophers have been arguing about what's real uh, way before Descartes and, and, uh, and ever since Descartes. And if we think about the way Descartes answered it, I, I think, therefore, I am. I'm, I'm here. I can think about it. But ADHD exists in a different culture, in a different time period, is a great question. Certainly, the behaviors that we measure are more problematic because of our day-to-day life. Putting kids in school for eight hours, having workers, uh, at least before COVID-19, be in cubicles all day long or now being on the screen all day long is is not conducive for uh, best performance. We know that. Companies like 3M give their employees a couple hours every day to just be creative or take a nap. We know that we're not supposed to be just powering through for eight hours a day. So, but we do know that structurally there are differences in, in at least some people with ADHD, structurally there's differences in their brain. And we know that there's that emotional regulation challenge. So even if we were thinking about a different time in history, a different culture, we believe that people with ADHD may still struggle to regulate their behaviors. And what your think, what your podcast is focused on is emotions and communication. Well, that's every culture. Every culture has always emphasized or should have emphasized uh, relationships and communication. So ADHD and the elements of self-regulation are real. They're absolutely real. The diagnosis in what we label it, that's a construct in our society. I firmly believe that in 10 to 15 years, we will call it something totally different. We'll have brain scans that say, hey, that that inattention is, is a totally different diagnosis. The impulsivity is a totally different set of behaviors. Um, hey, all, all of those uh, subtle brain injuries, we have new terms for all of that that's no longer called ADHD. The baby didn't have enough oxygen. We have a new definition for that. So... The term ADHD is a construct in our society, but I believe that the challenge with self-regulation is something that we would see in any culture. Yeah, so that's a real good terminology for people to focus on more, even though we're talking about ADHD a lot, because that's what people know. It's really bottom line self-regulation. Yeah. Is somebody that's diagnosed early on with ADHD is it bound that they're going to have adult ADHD? I mean, does it automatically go in or can you develop? A lot of people are saying, well, hey, I think I developed when I was adult or as a kid, we didn't have all of this uh, diagnosis. So do you have it all your life or does it develop later on? Or, That's a yeah. great question. Uh, the manual says that it should be there before you're seven years old. And so we think of it as a neurodevelopmental issue. What do you see? I don't like you. I, I like how you're, you're, you're careful about like, <laughs> this right. is what the manual says. And I know that this is your bread and butter, but you and I had some conversations about like, is it, is it really like anxiety? That's you right. know, that's, that's disguised in this, in this uh, terminology. So what are you seeing? Are you seeing it at a, at a young age or are you seeing it develop later? Yeah, that's, so that's a great question. So I do see it at a young age. And then really interestingly in my practice, I have a lot of college kids and a lot of adults coming in asking, 
hey, doc, can you diagnose me with ADHD? And I say, okay, well, we could talk about that. Were you diagnosed when you were little? No, no, but I always had problems with focus in school. I always had problems, but I've done fine just until now. <laughs> well, maybe, well, maybe it's because you're taking chemistry and you hate chemistry. You can't focus on it. <laughs> that's right, that's right, that's right. And I actually see it, uh, be a little tangential for a moment, but I see it in, in these college kids. They have really limited uh, work ethic and, and really poor habits. Hmm. And they tell me, hey, hey, doc, I, I got problems with uh, studying. I say, okay, well, have you ever studied? No, no, I've never studied. I've never, <laughs> I, I've always struggled with it. Well, okay, well, that, it may not be ADHD. So we know that for some people with ADHD, a, a good portion, that there's genetic markers. They've done genetic studies and a big study with over 30,000 people and they found genetic markers for ADHD. So we know that some of it's passed down from our parents. However, there are environmental facts too that impact whether someone presents with ADHD symptoms. And interestingly, we see what we call subtle brain injuries being a major factor in whether someone will eventually be diagnosed with ADHD. And, and, and I say subtle. I'm not talking about a traumatic brain injury, a concussion, a big fall. Subtle brain injuries in utero or when mm. a child is an infant could be a lack of oxygen at birth, birth complications. It could be exposure to chemicals. This is something that we really don't talk about enough. Yeah. Our society is exposed to a number of chemicals that um, have major impacts. We can at some point talk about uh, lead and, and how we discovered that lead was an issue. But things like that could cause later issues with ADHD. Another subtle brain injury at uh, birth or um, in early development could be stress. Yeah. We see parents who are under extreme conflict or extreme stress that their children have um, changes in their brain development. And how that manifests later on can vary greatly uh, in individual kids. Interestingly, at the group level, and that's a funny term, but at the group level, we can see brain changes or functional brain differences. What that means is that if we study enough brains, we look at enough brains, we can see ADHD and go, oh, yeah. This group of people have ADHD, but the brain is so dynamic and the regions of the brain interact so much that we cannot do that on an individual analysis. So we can't have one kid or one adult go to the hospital and do a brain scan and say, yeah, that's ADHD. But if we had a whole population of people do it, we could see trends and we could say, okay, yeah, look at this group that has ADHD. So we've had some pretty big developments in brain identification, and we know that brain functioning is an aspect for people with ADHD, but it's not the whole story. You know, I hear from a lot of people like, wow, that's like way overdiagnosed. You know, ADHD is like so overdiagnosed and, you know, the medication around it and, and so forth, Adderall. And I mean, when I've had a conversation with you, what I really loved is, you know, you're a real proponent about like, we're not automatically going to go into this corner at all. Like I said, it could be anxiety, learning disabilities, all kinds of things that the overdiagnosis of ADHD 
is so prevalent right now. How, how do you deal with that yeah. in your practice or with colleagues? And, you know, even I get couples as like, he's diagnosed, she's diagnosed with it. And so automatically they're the identified patient. Right, right. So first off, to, to, to just say it, ADHD is overdiagnosed. I've talked about that at conferences. I've talked about it internationally. I know you got some international listeners. So I've uh, presented on the overdiagnosis of ADHD and the overmedication of ADHD in Japan, Canada. And I was supposed to be in Prague this summer. Oh, man. Talking about the overdiagnosis of ADHD. Mm. But uh, COVID interrupted our plans. So that got postponed to next summer. So hopefully that'll still happen. But ADHD is absolutely overdiagnosed. The entire reason why I have a business in which I assess or evaluate ADHD is because I moved here to North Carolina and I was reading a book that, that we have here in the office. And, uh, strangely enough, it's a book by my advisor's advisor. And he's a neat guy at UC Berkeley. And he wrote this book on the explosion of ADHD diagnosis. And I'm reading this book like, wow, this is wild. I can't believe this. And I come to this chapter and it says, North Carolina leads the country, the United States country, in ADHD diagnosis. I thought, holy cow. Mm. Now, for listeners at home, you may know that Prepo lives in North Carolina. I also live in North Carolina. And I thought, what? Th that can't be true. I continue to read on. It said 30% of boys in North Carolina are diagnosed with ADHD. 30%. So one in three boys in, in North Carolina get a diagnosis of ADHD. Where I trained in California, it's six to 7%. Sometimes you'll hear 9%, much lower numbers. And so the overdiagnosis of ADHD is profound. It's a huge issue. And a few things lead to it. The number one leading cause to overdiagnosing ADHD is just identifying a child's behavior problems as being rooted in attention issues. They may be, but we have uh, schools and physicians who immediately jump to that. They don't look at the home environment to yeah. see if there's stress or trauma. They don't look at the classroom environment to see if there's poor class management. They don't look to see whether the child is sleeping well or exercising or eating well or if there are those potential subtle brain injuries uh, that we talked about, or if there are acute stressors, right? It, and acute stressors can absolutely cause behavior problems. And then here's the next step. The next step is we identify that, we say, okay, Joey, they will just use a kind of random name. A Joey. North Carolina boy's name, Joey. Yeah, Joey. Joey uh, has been having problems in the classroom. And we're going to give him some Ritalin or Adderall. Uh, for those of you at home listening, Ritalin, Ritalin and Adderall are performance-enhancing drugs. They improve performance in most people. We'll talk about how many, how often they help. But in most people, they improve performance. That's why pitchers and baseball players want to take it and they're not allowed to take it. So they give Joey some Adderall. And guess what? The next day, within one hour, Joey's behavior improves dramatically. So what does the teacher learn? The teacher learns that Joey has ADHD and that Adderall was the magic cure. Then the mom says to Joey's pediatrician, 
thank you. Joey's behavior improved tremendously. And the pediatrician says, great. Joey really did have ADHD. I'm a genius. I gave him the magic drug. And then the next kid that comes in the pediatrician's office has some behavior problems. And the pediatrician says, wow, well, you know, I got to say, I, I did a good job with Joey. Mm. I gave him that med. I'm going to give this next kid this med. And it's not, it's not malicious. You know, these, these pediatricians are trying to help. They're trying to help with the tools that they have available. And with insurance, and here in the United States, we have Medicaid. Medicaid mm -hmm. now, um, since 1983 or so, uh, started paying for Ritalin and Adderall. And then we saw an explosion. Now every uh -huh. kid on Medicaid could have access to these medications for free. And for an exhausted parent that doesn't know what to do or doesn't have the parenting skills, that's a, that's a way out. That's right. That's a, yeah. It's a huge way out. And you may be asking yourself at home, though, that sounds great. Sounds like you've solved the problem. Well, the stimulant helps a child or an adult pay attention for a, a limited period of time, but it doesn't teach skills. It doesn't teach social skills. It doesn't teach study skills. It doesn't teach life skills. Someone taking a stimulant could learn those skills if the proper person taught them, but that hasn't been happening. Do they learn it better if they're using that medication or do they, do they learn it better without those social skills? They could possibly learn it better with the medication because the medication might help them pay attention to the teacher or mm. the tutor or the friend. But for the most part, I don't think that's happening. I think that it's people are just treating them with the medication. And now we have a huge study, the MMA study, the multimodal study that actually looked at a tremendous number of kids over a long period of time. And they found that the best strategy was combination of a stimulant with behavioral strategies in the home and at school. But most of the time that doesn't happen. Most of the time they just prescribe the med. Kids don't stay on the meds for very long. The average time span child or adult is on stimulant medications about a year. And then they stop taking it because they don't like the side effects. It makes them feel funny. And then kind of back to square one. Are there long-term studies that show long-term uh, effects, detrimental effects? That's an interesting question. I think that listeners could find different research to suggest different things depending on which website they're looking at. Mm -hmm. The early studies with mice showed both pros and cons, some consequences, but our brain chemistry is much different than mice. Studies with monkeys showed improvements in dopamine pathways, and studies in college kids have also showed brain scans and uh, improvements in dopamine. We really don't know much about neurotransmitters or how they work or um, how it all goes down in the brain. We have a lot of theories, and yeah. people guess, uh, psychiatrists guess, they're good at guessing, they're good at creating theories, but we don't know. We can't open up Joey's brain and watch the stimulant medication impact uh, his neurotransmitters, but we believe stimulants impact dopamine and dopamine's an interesting neurotransmitter for a lot of reasons. So I think the general consensus is that stimulants don't have long-term consequences. Some studies show that they do. The majority of studies show that they don't. They do impact appetite. They can impact uh, growth at times. And 
with any type of medication, you know, we, we really only learn yeah. in, in, in hindsight. It's just that yeah, I'm not advocating or not, but I have a good friend that told me that his, his mother slipped the Ritalin when he was a kid in his milk. So basically he was saying, man, my mother drugged me and I didn't even know it. And he, he, like, he was pissed off at her for, for years and years. And I think like, that's the one aspect that, that's kind of hard with kids with medication, behavioral medication is like, they don't have a say in it. They don't have autonomy. And I know that parents are doing it for many reasons for, for the best of their ability to, to create an environment that's satisfactory to the whole family and their kids. But that's a ramification that I know as adults, I hear, yeah, I didn't, I didn't have a choice. Yeah, and, and that goes to consent. How as a kid do you consent to your own medical treatment? Mm, right. That's a, yeah, that's a great kind of ethical question, philosophical yeah. question we could wax about. There's a good uh, Netflix documentary on this. I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but um, where they interview a bunch of kids later on, years later, and they talk about how stimulants may have helped them in some ways, not helped them in others. A couple of the artistic students that were interviewed really talk about it. And I'm, I'm hearing myself have a ear from listeners saying, so is it a gateway drug for kids? You know, being, being on stimulants all the time, is that precursor to, to use more substance later on? Any studies or thoughts on that? There are studies on that. The, interestingly, my immediate response, though, is that ADHD seems to be co-occurring with a lot of substance use and behavioral problems, particularly when kids, kids or adults are not medicated. So just simply having the diagnosis of ADHD, talk about stigma. Well, it's also attached to a whole lot of behavior problems, getting in trouble um, using a lot of substances uh, quite recklessly. Uh, and we're not talking about moderate use or experiment. I mean, we're talking about these studies demonstrate that the kids with an ADHD diagnosis are getting into trouble, getting caught with a lot of substances and hardcore stuff. Um, now, you might say, well, yo, doc, you just told us 10 minutes ago <laughs> that ADHD is overdiagnosed. How do you know that the kids in that study actually have an ADHD diagnosis? We don't. We don't. Um, it could be that the same kids with the behavior problems are getting diagnosed with ADHD and then they're having a challenges with substances and they get lumped into the same category. So it's hard to say. But one of the things that is really important to identify is that people who have been diagnosed with ADHD tend to, as a group, not, not individually, but as a group, have a lot of challenges with behaviors uh, throughout their life. One of the things that we're going to talk about a lot that your podcast is all about is, is relationships. And rating scales by other people, when we do rating scales on like uh, partners and parents, uh, they identify that people with ADHD have pretty profound challenges with peer relationships. Mm. And um, if we think about kind of what might lead to challenges with substances or challenges with behaviors, challenges... You know, I think a pattern. Hear me, pay attention to me. Like that's that's, that's a big right. one, right? Just in itself. If if we're if we're looking at the the definition of it, attention deficit, then there's an aspect that just in couples constantly, they want to be seen, they want to be heard, and when one partner is handicapped or have a, a 
I don't know what the word is, is handicapped, but that just came to me of like is has a challenge with paying attention. They're not going to hear what the partner says a lot. There's going to be a lot of frustration just in the inattention of you didn't hear me right. That's right. And let me back up and I'm going to dive into my best description of what ADHD is. And then we'll talk about partners and in that hearing part. So we were talking about ADHD and kind of thinking about what it is. I like to describe it as a spectrum. And I know you hear that term a lot to describe a lot of things. So I, I, I hate to be a, a broker record, but I think this is a little different to talk about ADHD as a spectrum. If you at home can picture on uh, the right side, there is inattention, somebody who's just kind of not paying attention, spaced out, uh, struggling to pay attention. Then on the left side, as far as you can go, there's somebody who's super hyperactive, like super engaged, can't sit still, bouncing all over the place. If in the middle of the line that you would draw from the person on your right with inattention to the person on your left with hyperactivity, if in the middle, right in the middle is self-regulation, that's a good spectrum of what ADHD is. We hope that the person would have self-regulation, but there's times where they're all the way on the right and they're inattentive, they're spaced out. And if they have a hyperactive kind of ADHD, they might be all over the place doing a million different things and not able to kind of sit down and settle. And when we think about ADHD, the best way to think about it when you're thinking about it, if it's something that you identify with or if it's something that you identify your partner is having, is to think of it as a self-regulation disorder. If you use the term ADHD, it might get a little bit lost, but if you say self-regulation like disorder, hmm. it tells you what's going on. Right, because it's self-regulation and emotionally also. That's not, right. Not just attention, not just hearing, but emotionally, because a lot of times people with ADHD, they have a hard time regulating their emotions, and so there's more anger outbursts, right? There are, there yeah. are anger outburst. And then one of the things that I'm going to throw a, a terrible term at, at, at the listeners, um, in psychology, we're really good at coming up with terrible terms. Yeah, we are. We got like, <laughs> we got awful ter terminology. So this is one of them. Uh, the term is inhibition. Uh, a good definition for inhibition is the voice in your head that says, don't do that. Don't say that. Stop. Stop and think about it before you do it. So inhibition is one of the areas where people with ADHD really, really, really struggle. And in relationships, how often do you have that little voice in the back of your head saying, you know, don't, don't say that thing or don't do that thing. Stop right there. Just pause for a moment. Mm. Think about it for a moment. Someone with ADHD struggles with that. They don't think, they just say the thing, they do the thing. Man, I want to come up with some apparatus, some app like that people buy or some some earplug. That that's don't right. do it right there. Don't go there, man. Don't do that. That's right. Just catch them. Catch them. That's <laughs> a shock collar or something. Man. That'd be right. per, um, yeah. We'll do it together. <laughs> it needs to be done. Um, right. And when we're talking about our emotions, what you were just saying a moment ago, I know I went tangential to that. I'm going to bring it back. Talking about our emotions, our emotions hijack us. If we're going to play a role in managing our emotions, we need self-regulation. And that inhibition aspect of managing it so it doesn't 
snowball or it doesn't overwhelm us. But folks with ADHD get overwhelmed with their emotions quick and in somewhat unpredictable ways. Mm. They will tell you, ah, I don't know why this got, got to me so much. Their partner will say, I don't know why they reacted that way. Um, it can snowball really quick. And that's the self-regulation piece. And an inhibition, that, that terrible term, is a factor there. It's also a factor in communication, right? So much of communication is that metacognition or the, the meta aspect of thinking about how can I communicate this best? Right. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times folks with ADHD don't have that. So even a great couples counselor can say, hey, I want you to think about this before you act, before you say that thing. Yeah. So is it hard for, for people to pause? I mean, like I tell yeah. people like, man, take that sacred pause, man. Like you could take that one moment, that breath before before you respond. I know that I had a good friend that that had, had ADHD and he was a talkaholic. And one aspect of that he was just constantly talking was he had just a hard time feeling his feelings and pausing because if he felt his feelings, he would deregulate as you're saying. He didn't know how to self-regulate. So he just kept going and going and going and not understanding the, the thing that I say with communication is like playing this catch to, to know that, that there is another entity out there that also I should have my mirror neurons on and what's going on for them. There's, there's a lot of this dysregulation going on with themselves that they don't have a perspective of what's going on with other people. That's right. And, and if they do, they sometimes lose it. So that, that brings up my, um, mm. my description of working memory. I like to think of working memory as the ability to keep information at hand for when it's needed. Back when we were growing up, somebody would give me uh, or give you a phone number and you had to remember it to write it down or type it in, you know. Uh, that's a good example of working memory. We use working memory all the time when we're packing the car, packing to go, we're going around the house, hey, I got to remember to do this, this, and this. And we're remembering four or five things. And folks with ADHD traditionally have really poor working memory. The information slips out, they lose it. And so oftentimes people with ADHD, especially grownups will tell me, hey, I had that thought. I had that thought to pause or to say this or to do this. And then it slipped away. I lost it. Or I'm wondering, I can't pause because if I pause, I'm going to lose it. So I've got to get it in and I got to say it too. Yeah, right? that's, that, that's yeah, yeah. that pressure, right? So mm -hmm. that pressure of, oh, I know that this pattern happens for me. When I think of something really good mm -hmm. or really important that I have to say, sometimes my partner talks for too long and then I can't say it. So I'm just, I got to get it out before I lose it. Is that that syndrome, you know, that squirrel syndrome is like, you know, they go off on a, a whole different tangent. Sometimes I'm thinking, we're not finished with this subject. And I had my friend would tell me, but if I didn't say it, I would totally lose it. I'm like, okay, I get that. But also maybe you'll just lose it. Stay with me on this one. But I did realize and have more compassion is it's more about that. There's so much going on that he wanted to be able to say these different subjects that was coming. And he thought that that was actually connecting, but it wasn't connecting because it was losing that train of one connection of the subject that we were talking about. Yeah. It's connecting with what he wanted That's right. to talk about, but he wasn't present to what you wanted to talk about. 
Yeah. And so much of being in a relationship is just being present and uh, making room for the other person. It's interesting if you if you talk to folks with ADHD, they often miss that. They don't see that dynamic. They can be so focused on, I got to get this out. I got to say this thing that they may during that process have multiple times where they think, I wonder if I should keep going. I wonder if Prepo's listening to me. I wonder if my partner's listening to me, or maybe my partner wants to talk about something else. But the problem with that dynamic is that the working memory won't hold that question long enough. It slips out and then that's gone. And the partner might say, I wish you would make more time for me, or I wish you would give me more time to talk in our, in our conversations. And, and uh, the response to that might be, I did think about that. I remember having that thought. I remember wanting to do that. And I'm not sure why I did. Mm. Uh, I, I simply lost it. The other thing that happens quite a lot is when information is in working memory, if it gets lost, if it floats away before it goes into short-term memory, it never gets into long-term memory. And so sometimes partners will say, he doesn't listen or she doesn't listen. I wish she would remember the important things I told her. Mm -hmm. I wish he would remember the, the list of things that I asked him to do. Interestingly, a lot of the adults that come in for ADHD testing, it's their partner who's encouraging <laughs> them to come in because Make they- Make my life easier, because, man. Because they're yeah. often forgetting the important things that, that are being said. And what ends up happening is the partner really doesn't feel valued. Right. They don't feel listened to and they start to hypothesize or project that maybe the other person doesn't care because right. they they- they aren't remembering the information. Yeah. And so they also then shut down in some ways because it's like, what's the use? If I, if I keep telling what I want, but it doesn't, I'm going to get continually get disappointed. So there's also a withdrawal that happens from the person. Yeah. Yeah. yeah a withdrawal or, or sometimes the opposite, sometimes uh, an expression of frustration. Mm -hmm. And if you've ever been frustrated at someone who doesn't know why you're frustrated, <laughs> It's, it's a frustrating experience. Uh, I think that happens a lot with ADHD. The feeling of, why is this person frustrated at me? Yeah. Did I, did I forget something again? <laughs> Maybe I did. And then it gets back to that self-regulation piece where the individual accused of forgetting may be impulsive or reactive or overly challenged by that and respond in a way that they wish they didn't. Mm -hmm. And so now we have a new dynamic of, uh, of over-response or overreaction, And the thing that I like to talk to people about is understanding that these behaviors, these responses become habits. If we do them often enough, if it's, if it's a partner who withdraws, that becomes a habit. If it's a partner that reacts and reacts strongly, that becomes a habit. And then we get stuck in these habits. And, and a lot of your podcasts talk about ways to change that, ways to address that. But I think of a lot of our behaviors as being reactions or responses to the stress or to the stimuli or to the way our brains work. And then after we've had that behavior, if we keep doing that behavior, 
we develop a habit and then we have a whole different challenge on our hands. What about the aspect of uh, like emotional intimacy? If people have ADHD, is there an uncomfortableness to stay with a intimate moment? I mean, it's it's hard enough to stay with an intimate moment when you're really focused because it's like, holy shit, like this is this is profound, this is big. Like another human being is just looking at me or just said a few words that really hit me in a heartfelt sense. I want to stay with this emotional connection. Do people with ADHD have a harder time than staying with emotional intimacy and then therefore their relationships are challenged on that end? Yeah, that, that, that's, that's a beautiful question. I think the cool way to think about it is to think about what we think is going on in the brain. We have some cool technology that allows us to see brain waves. And if someone's really focused on something, like a partner or a conversation or that intimate moment, a lot of their brain waves might be collected in their frontal cortex. Or if they're, they're really emotional, they might be somewhere else in their amygdala or a hippocampus or something. But, but if their brain waves are really, really focused on, on uh, that intimate moment, it's really a beautiful thing. It's interesting the way brain waves work. They can be a bit random. When we look at ADHD brains, they're super random in that electrical activity bounces all over the place. And so the ADHD brain might be really, really fun for a little while. And you could have an intimate, creative, bouncy, fun moment. But if one partner wanted to focus in on something and the, the individual with ADHD also tried to, they may not be able to. The electrical activity in their brain may just be bouncing around to different ideas, thoughts, or spacing out if they're inattentive, right? Just kind of drifting off topic, which could be very unsettling to the person who is hoping they would receive more, more mm. attention. Yeah. And so there, there is likely a, an electrical process of that, really losing the connection. The good news is that we can improve that. Yeah. Yeah. I think like that's the part like, you know, we don't have to linear layer it out, but I think it's really good to talk about, you know, people probably asking like, how, how can I turn some of that right, around? Right. And, and what was coming up for me that I had some curiosity because I've got this whoop um, apparatus that helps me with my understanding my sleep and whoop, man, if you ever want to sponsor me, because I'll yeah. give it, I'm, I love it. Is it true that that REM sleep is for short-term memory? The longer that you have REM sleep, it improves short-term memory? Is that yeah, true? Yeah, I think that's a good way to say it. The easier way to say it is just to say sleep improves attention and memory. Okay, so so and that's a big could, thing, right? You could just, yeah. now, it could be that someone's sleeping a number of hours, but they're not getting that deep REM sleep. So the REM sleep is is what what's associated with those improvements. Mm -hmm. But we want to just tell people sleep's super important. And while we're on sleep, one of the biggest things that frustrates me is that no one ever told me this fact. So I'm going to tell people this fact. Here we go, people. All right. If you got ADHD, you better write this down. Yeah, or not, because <laughs> I don't have ADHD, but this, this fact changed, changed my life. It takes about five days in a row to get a good sleep routine going. In America and in other countries, well, especially in Europe, some, some of these countries, right? Like we have late nights. 
whenever I'm in Europe, we have we have lots of good late nights. They're wonderful times. Eat at 10 o'clock at night. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. I don't settle down till 2 a.m. <laughs> when I'm in Europe. And it takes about five nights in a row to get a good sleep routine. And so for those college kids out there, the, the younger folks who might have a good sleep routine from Monday to Friday and then stay up super late Saturday, Sunday, well, the moment you got your good sleep routine, you messed it up on right. Saturday or Sunday. Yeah. And then you got to start over. And so you you never actually establish a good sleep routine unless you can maintain that. And so Netflix and all these things that that interrupt this process for us create a challenge. Good, consistent sleep more than five days in a row improves attention, improves memory. And if your attention and your memory are improving, you got superpowers. There you go. This is yeah. great. Mm-hmm. Exercise improves attention and memory. So does eating well. I often hear parents, not as many adults, but parents ask about food coloring and additives. They have an effect. Uh, Food coloring and additives do impact someone's attention span. Uh, The more whole foods that you eat, the more natural foods that you eat, the greater your attention span will be. So, So there's a lot of factors there. Sleep, exercise, good eating. And if you're doing those things, you'll have more capacity to pay attention longer. And for this podcast, that means maybe paying attention to your partner longer, paying attention to those projects, those activities that you're doing together longer. The other things that you can do that really do work, and it's not just saying it because it's it's popular, but mindfulness and meditation work tremendously. Mindfulness works if you can improve the, the practice of being mindful like you're exercising. Think about training for a marathon and you want to like if you're training for a marathon, you'd run a little bit more each day. And if you address either mindfulness or meditation that way, where you're going to do a little bit more each day, your brain's going to get stronger. The brain is a muscle. The more we use it in focused efforts, the stronger it gets. Hmm. That's great. Those are simple things that are really challenging. I mean, sleep consistency, I found out about what sleep consistency really means. Like you're saying that it's got to be done like every day you go to sleep at the same time, you wake up at the same time. If you can do that, I know my recovery and how I feel, my memory, all kinds of things really improve. So yeah, those, those things are simple, but it's a continuous practice to have the life, you know, that we want. I'm also curious, Chris, like, let's say with couples themselves, what are some of the things that they can do? What I tell some couples to help benefit that would be like, hey, if one of you has a strong point, if one of you is really good with, with budget or numbers, then go ahead and dictate. The person maybe with ADHD, if they're, if they're having a, a more difficult time in this disorganization, don't try to push it. Like utilize where your talents are as a couple and really play off of each other. So I think that there's there's ways to you know have your your meetings to go over things over and over what's important priority for the week. If there is a list that your partner wants, hey, text it to yourself, you know, and and have it handy so that it, you're looking at it more often. So I think that there's tools that couples can work with that dynamic instead of really make it against. Do you have any any others that? Yeah, I think those are great. I think that the more you can work as a team and identify your strengths, so uh, identifying who's strong at, at, at this task and who would be stronger at this task, you might feel like, well, my partner with ADHD, 
uh, starts a lot of projects, but doesn't finish those projects. Okay, well then how about every Saturday you attack a project together and you join forces on that, knowing that your partner may get a little off track and not finish it. Well, what if you're there to uh, finish it with them? Mm -hmm. I really like the idea of couples doing things together. Uh, if you, if, if you're not exercising, go exercise together. If you need to improve your sleep hygiene, well, great. Have a routine so you're going to bed at the same time and you might need to tweak that because you're two different people, but you can work on that together. You can eat healthy together. Technology is amazing with all the reminders and the apps, uh, figuring out what works, coming up with reminders and texts is important. But one of the things that often gets missed with people with ADHD or anybody working on behavioral change, this is about behavioral change for kids, adults, self-regulation. That's right. Self-regulation is the habits that you're working on, the behavior change that you're working on. You can do it for a couple of weeks and then you might get bored of it. You might stop it. And that two to three week period is where it really gets tough. And you might need to tweak things. You might need to add rewards for yourself. Hey, we're, we've always wanted to go on this vacation or we've always wanted to do this fun activity. Let's work on this as a couple for a couple of weeks and then we'll go do that fun activity together. Uh, let's reward ourselves for improving our sleep, improving our exercise, for coming up with systems together. I think couples should and families should, I call it like the celebration, celebrate any chance that you get. Anything that feels like, wow, we accomplished this or we did this and this is going well, celebrate it. Don't just go on to the next thing to try to improve. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So if you were doing that, that is, from what we understand of the brain, going to flood your brain with dopamine and all those good things, which is what the stimulant medication does. So a great way, if you don't want to use stimulant medication, is to have a lot of behavior plans and to have a lot of celebration, have a lot of rewards. But know that every couple of weeks, you're going to need to tweak that. We really just don't like doing the same thing over and over and over again every single day. We like variety. And you might feel like you and your partner come up with a good plan, a good strategy, and it's working well, and then it stops working. Mm. And that's a great time to be creative, communicate, come up with a different strategy. I hear from couples that, hey, you know, the reminders on his iPhone were working really well. <laughs> and then he just started ignoring oh, all no. of them. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You need a, you need yeah. a different, a different technique. You got to tweak it. And by, by doing that together, you can make long-term behavioral change. The way you want to think about it is that you want to develop habits yourself that you and your partner can then improve your relationship with. And you want your partner to be motivated to, to develop habits for him or herself. And now we can't change our partner unless they want to change, but but it really is about developing habits, new behavioral habits. And if we're developing new behavioral habits, what are we doing? Self-regulating. Yeah. We're working on that emotional regulation, the behavioral regulation, and we are improving as individuals. If you're improving as an individual, your relationship's gonna improve too. Yeah, that was great. I also just wanna plug that behavioral practice around appreciations. I think it's huge because 
you know, there's a lot of shame around this for, for people too. Shame for maybe their own frustration of not being able to pay attention or challenges that they're having or as a parent, the shame that their their kid's not behaving the way that they want to. When you're feeding that that aspect of appreciation of who they are and when they are being present and things that they're doing, I think that that really helps the focus to get away from more guilt or shame and more about really appreciating the effort and who they are. And so you're not just criticizing and complaining and a hit of dopamine boy appreciation gives a huge hit of dopamine so as a couple i would put put out really make that a habit if this is also in your dynamic that's so good that's so good and it made me think about when you're talking about that shame it made me think about anxiety we haven't talked too much about anxiety today and, and i apologize for that one of the things i want to say is that that shame creates an anxious thought or the anxious thought creates shame could go either way. And that lives in your working memory. Think about when you have a, a, a worried thought or a, a negative thought, it, your brain repeats it over and over and over again. And it's in your working memory, which means that you're less likely to be able to remember what your partner is saying or what your partner is asking for. And you're less likely to be holding other important information like your to-do list in your working memory. Then counter that with what Prepo is saying, if you include an appreciation in there or a positive mantra about yourself instead of that negative thought process or that anxious thought process, you're going to feel better and be more willing and able to, to tackle the next challenge. Mm. And, and thinking about uh, the ADHD brain and how limited working memory is, if that process is filled with anxiety or shame, uh, your partner's gonna have a real tough go of it. They're gonna have a tough time remembering what you're saying and remembering what they need to do. If their working memory is supported with reminders and, uh, and lots of collaboration, a lot of appreciation and joy, they are going to have behavioral change. They're going to be able to practice behavioral change which will lead to self-regulation. It'll lead to habits and in, in, in different behaviors long-term. Right. That's great. Wow. This was cool, man. Thanks. It's a great subject that I know that people really want to know more information about. And I'm not going to put you on the spot, but I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm, I'm hoping that maybe you have some resource. We didn't get into aspects of, let's say, alternative supplements or other things that people can, can take besides the pharmaceutical medication that could help in many areas besides what we, which we gave in just now. Yeah, I'll jump in there real quick. So we know that most of us, and, and maybe I should say all of us, but I'll just say most of us, because some of you out there might be doing a real good job, but most of us are not getting all the nutrients we need. And there are good studies to suggest that omega-3s really, really, really do help attention there are suggestions that other uh, nutrients and micronutrients do as well, but omega-3s are the, the clear winner of the research at this moment. The, the other things that are good recommendations are, we have this in America, in some cities, if you're struggling with organizational habits, you can buy a book and it can tell you how to organize, but th that doesn't go too far. The best strategy really is to hire 
an executive functioning coach or really a habit coach, somebody who can teach you how to organize, teach you how to manage your time better. You might be thinking, well, I already know how, I just don't do it. Actually, that's the key. The executive functioning coach is most helpful because it's somebody other than your partner who Mm. can hold you accountable. So here in Asheville, we got a couple of people, Rudy Rodriguez is one of them. And I tell people, I say, yeah, you're meeting with Rudy to learn organizational skills, but you're also meeting with Rudy because just because you have a appointment next week is going to help you practice the skills. He's going to hold that part of meeting with somebody weekly is going to hold you accountable to practice. And practice is really the key. There are good books out there. One of my colleagues that I used to work with in San Francisco, uh, Phil uh, Boussier, wrote uh, Thriving with Adult ADHD. You can just type in Thriving with Adult ADHD on Amazon or on the internet. And Phil, I think he just did a great job with that book. It's real practical. Talks a lot lot about self-regulation and managing your emotions and your thoughts. And I think Phil does a a good job. He also has a TED talk on meditation and he kind of understands approaching ADHD from that angle. And so that's one that I like to refer to. But I think that if you're thinking about how you can help your own ADHD symptoms, the the best part to start with is improve your sleep, improve your exercise, eat well. Once your body is getting all the nutrients and getting that rest and that exercise, you're putting yourself in a good position to then learn skills and be more adaptable to uh, develop new habits and and better self-regulate. Do what your grandma said, get some good sleep, eat well, get outside. That's right. That's right. <laughs> hey, man, thanks again. Because I just want to say that I so appreciate your support. You've been um, with me as my office mate for the duration of when I started. I told you about the idea about the podcast. And then when it first came out, you were so excited and supportive. And there's times where I know that you listen to some episodes and say some things about it. And So thank you so much for supporting me around that. And I'm so glad that I finally got you on. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I, I, I'm just, I, I'm thrilled about what you're doing and what you're providing and, and the support that that's getting out there. I think that as a couples therapist, uh, you do spectacular work. People rave about your work years later and not everybody's ready to go into couples counseling and not everybody's in Asheville. Not everybody can, can get in touch with you. Um, and the other thing is it's so fascinating, you know, when you're in a, in a partnership, Sometimes you might be ready to, for change, but sometimes your partner might not be. And one of the things I love about your podcast is I'll listen to it. I'll think, oh, that, 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 that was good. That was really good. And I'll get the goosebumps. I'll be like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I'll, I'll, I'll ask my wife. I say, hey, I want you to listen to this part. She might be really busy, but if she listens to that part, I, I know it's going to be meaningful hmm. and going to have an impact. And, and I think that partners may be able to listen together but they also are able to listen separately and learn a little bit and then try to apply it. And so the podcast is just a really cool method of delivering support. Thank you. All right, man. So it's, it's, it's Thursday. It's not recycling day. I got out of doing the recycling cause I wasn't here and you're doing it every Tuesday. So thanks for that too. <laughs> we'll do this again, man. Yeah. I'd love okay. to. Thanks. Lemon. Thank you. Hey everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode. I want to take a moment for my appreciation practice 
and thank those of you that have recently donated to my podcast. I'd like to thank Charles in Quebec and Nancy in North Carolina. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. And for those of you that are interested in supporting the podcast, you can go to prepo.com on support the podcast page and you can leave a one-time donation or a reoccurring donation. It is a great help to keep putting out the podcast to you all. Also, if you have a relationship question, I love to do episodes on listeners' questions. So go to my website, prepo.com, on the contact page. You can leave your question in the form and email it to me so I can answer it on a future podcast. Don't forget to check out my guided meditations that I have on my website, and there are more coming of those. Check us out on Instagram at Prepotoplitsky. And don't forget to leave us a review if you're listening on Apple Podcast. All right, everybody, thank you so much. I hope wherever you are that you're finding your moments more peaceful and content among all of these stresses. Don't forget to take that time out. Take care of yourselves. Be kind to yourselves and those around you. Mm-hmm. Healthy relationships equals healthy immune systems. Stay well, stay safe, and make yourselves a beautiful day. Relationships, Let's Talk About It is a production of HeartShare Counseling and Consulting PC of Asheville, North Carolina. For more on licensed counselor Prepo Teplitsky, visit heartsharecounseling.com. Theme music by Adi the Monk. This content is intended for informational purposes only, is not a substitute for professional counseling and psychotherapy, medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, and does not constitute medical or other professional advice. Thank you.